Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome into the podcast. We are continuing in to study, uh, we're continuing studying through the book of Revelation. And uh, we want to remind you, to, hey, study along with us. Uh, we have show notes in the podcast apps. You could scroll up, you could check those things out. It'll, they'll have outlines and, and notes for what we're doing if, if we reference things that might be a little weird because, uh, well, I, I don't know. I guess they're a little weird, but I know me, I'm a visual learner. So just hearing stuff doesn't always help. So seeing things, things will definitely benefit you. So I always thought check you were going to say, knowing me, I'm a little weird. Knowing but, me, I'm a we lot both weird. are. I mean, it's just this, this absolutely is with itself. Uh, yeah. very, very. We could start a club. We have we to start a club where the, no one wants to join us. Yeah. It's a club. <laughs> we're weird. Exactly. But for for all those other ones who who are listening, wanting to actually learn about God and reverence Him in a good way, follow along, read the Book of Revelation with us as we study. We're going to be hanging out in this for a while, so this is just a great opportunity to read and reread. Um, so we have show notes that are going to be available for relevant passages that we're hanging out and uh, read Revelation chapter one, especially for next week, because we're getting really close to to hanging out in the text. Also, we have other recommended resources that will help you for studying and, and for more information. So we're going to make those available. Um, and then we want to know that there's a, a devotional guide that Rob has been working on. So it's a seven week, five day a week devotional guide. It's posted on determinedtruth.com. And so you can work through that. Rob also has a series of studies on his YouTube page. So it's at Rob Dalrymple. And you could even see teachings that he's been doing with a Zoom class. We talked about that in last week's episode, I, I believe. Uh, so there's some little, little bit of information there. So anyway, enough of the, the promo, the preview stuff. Uh, question, Rob, as we get into today's topic, which is going to be a fun one, uh, it, it literally is going to be a blast. Literally, that's a dad joke. But uh, I know a, a lot of people, and I grew up in this tradition, you grew mm -hmm. up in this tradition, yeah. we say that the, the Bible must be interpreted literally. As we said in week one of the study, um, we, you know, many people think that we know how Revelation is a you know, is to be interpreted and it's about to, mm -hmm. you know, it's telling how, how it's going to be fulfilled because we can understand things through world events because this book is a literal thing that's pointing us to all the things that we're yep. seeing in the news and, and that sort of thing now. So, you know, John was seeing nuclear warfare and he's describing it in first century terms because he just doesn't know any better. Uh, so he doesn't know what that would entail. He doesn't know that uh, what an army tank looks like. So he just calls them a bunch of horses and he doesn't know what an Apache helicopter is. So he just calls them locust. Uh, is that the best way to understand some of the symbolism? And should we just, you know, as faithful readers of the text, which you and I strive to be, should we just approach the Bible with this literalistic mindset? Yeah, this is actually very problematic. That's what we're going to get to tonight in our next couple episodes. So yeah, I was raised in the tradition, the same thing that basically said, the beauty of, of living in the 20th century is the fact that we can now understand the book of Revelation literally because they just never had the ability to understand it before. But now we know what helicopters are. John sees these locusts coming up out of the abyss. And it says in verse 7, the, chapter 9, verse 7, the, the appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads appeared to be crowns like crowns of gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of the wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing in the battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings, and their tails have the power to torment men for five months. And so Hal Lindsey comes along, I think 69, 1970, writes this book called The Lake, Great Planet Earth. 
And he says, I know what this is. This is actually John describing nuclear warfare. And I think he wrote a commentary just right after that to say the same thing. John's describing nuclear warfare and these are just, he's describing military helicopters, but John had no idea. So when he says in chapter six, that the sky is split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up. Oh, that's a mushroom cloud. Mm-hmm. When John's describing helicopters or whatever and ancient orange being sprayed on people, uh, he had no idea what it was. And so uh, this is what he's doing is he's, he's just using first century language to describe something that actually is the 21st century or 20th century. And so, oh, it's awesome. It's awesome. It's awesome. Um, the problem, of course, becomes that this means that no one at the time of John until actually for 1900 years knew what the book meant because it, it meant nothing to them. They, they had no idea. Only us in the modern world and the contemporary world actually have the ability to understand what the book of Revelation actually means. But the book, as we're going to discuss as we go into the first chapter in a few weeks here, it's going to be full of exhortations to John's people, even the number 666. If anyone has insight, let them calculate the number. Like, you guys can figure this out. You know what it is. Chapter 1, verse 3 is a blessing for those who read and the one who hears and the one who keeps what is written in the book. The seven letters are full of exhort to every every one of those seven, seven messages. Every one of the letters ends with the one who overcomes. Well, it implies that they're able to overcome and that they know what overcoming means and that they know what they have to overcome. You know, mm-hmm. The whole book is full of exhortations to the God's people. In fact, actually, let me give you another one, Vinny. Um, chapter 16, which is the famous Armageddon passage, right? Uh, it's It describes this great army coming across the, the great river Euphrates being dried up. Uh, it says in chapter uh, 16, uh, verse 14, they're, they're the spirits of demons performing signs. They go out to the kings of the whole world. They gather them together for the war, the great day of God, the Almighty. That's verse 14. Now, verse 16, they gather them together for the place that in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon or Armageddon. But verse 15 in the middle, which most all translations put in parentheses, and because it's, it's parenthetical, says, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he won't walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Note that John's making an appeal, or Jesus is, to the people of God to whom the book was written that, hey guys, stay awake and keep your clothes. So it's an appeal to God's people. And we discussed this in plenty of detail, I know, in our uh, episodes on apocalyptic and prophetic and um, uh, epistolary that the genre that is that it was written to the people of that time. So um, I, my story really quickly here is that I became disillusioned with that whole understanding of, of things. That's how I was raised to believe. That's what I believed for all those years. By the time I got to 1989, I, I think a guy named Swihart, I, I can't remember exactly how uh, the author was, wrote a book called Armageddon 1980 mm-hmm. and then had a question mark. So 198 question mark. Sometime in 1980s, Armageddon was going to happen and the Russians were going to invade Israel. And this is all going to happen. This 200 million soldiers that we talked about in our last episode, they're all going to come from the East and invading Israel. This is what's going to happen. By the time we got to 1989, the Berlin Wall fell. And I realized we're farther from a Russian invasion or an Eastern invasion of Israel than we were beforehand. The Russians can't even feed their own military. And I said, this is, this is ridiculous. And I kind of put it all aside. And I actually thought, you know what? One of the things I was told at the time that prophecy is not able to be understood until it's fulfilled. Oh, when it's fulfilled, you're like, oh, now it makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, the book of Revelation just doesn't make sense. No one knows what it means. And when it happens, then we'll figure it all out. And I literally believe that you should put a P 
page before the book of Revelation. You know how you have a page between the Old Testament and New Testament? It's like a blank page. Mm -hmm. We should put a blank page before the book of Jude, after Jude and before Revelation says, and says, do not trespass because no one knows what it means. Mm -hmm. Well, then I became a professor in the New Testament and I'm teaching in a Christian school. I'm thinking, well, I can't teach New Testament studies without teaching the book of Revelation. So I started with some like very conservative, popular evangelical scholars, not popular, but um, popular in the sense of in the scholarly world, well and respected, respected and well, yeah, respected well read commentaries and, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, that you're familiar with, whatever. And I read yep. commentary in the book of Revelation. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. This has nothing to do with what I was taught, this literal interpretation mindset, this Hal Lindsey mindset. And you look at a good commentary that has a lot of footnotes where they're referencing other commentators and other scholars and other writings. And you're like, you're looking at all the, the, the footnotes, you're like, everybody else is saying this too. Just look at all the references here. I began realizing, okay, wait a minute, something else uh, is going on. So um, the point that I would say then uh, to begin with would be this. A, a literal hermeneutic, which I was raised with, and I think you were too. The mm -hmm. idea of a literal hermeneutic is actually a hermeneutic of fear. And was, the idea of it is, if we don't interpret the Bible literally, then how do we interpret it? And since mm -hmm. we don't know the answer to that question, the safeguard is to say it's just it's literal at all times. One of the famous dispensational scholars, we'll define dispensational in a minute, uh, wrote in his popular work, he, he says, literalism at all costs. That's Lewis Berry Schaefer. He literally says, mm -hmm. literalism at, uh, at all costs. We're always going to interpret literally unless we just can't. My type of mindset. Um, it's, just, it's a hermeneutic of fear. It's, if, if we don't take the book of Revelation literally, then you're going to say the book of Genesis is not literal. And if the book of Genesis is not literal, because like evolutionary scholars are telling us it's not literal, then maybe the gospels are not literal. And if the gospels are not literal, then maybe Jesus is not literal and, and our faith is gone. That's literally the way I was taught. And mm -hmm. even through my, my graduate school, not obviously not my postgraduate school. But the, the second thing about that understanding is, is that if the Bible is not literal, then it's not true. That's simply mm -hmm. the way I was raised. If the Bible is not literal, then it's not true. And it's like, no, that's not the case at all. And I think we'll unpack some of that as we go tonight. Yeah. And unfortunately, like there's even popular ministries around today where you appeal to, you know, Genesis. Mm -hmm. And it's like, if, if you don't believe in a literal account of a six day, 24 hour creation, and you're going to give that away, then you're probably not a Christian because how yeah. can you believe that the resurrection literally happened? Right. Yeah. Exactly. And it's, it's unfortunately because it's, it doesn't show a lot of charity. It's, it's done from fear and it creates this, it's just this reading of this, of the text that it's, it's not, I don't think at all times what every author intended to communicate. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah I like your word charity. That was a, that's a good word that you just used there because the reality is there really are good Christian men and women on other sides of the table, other sides of yeah. the aisle in these conversations. But okay. it's interesting too, because the, the text itself, the Bible itself does not tell us to read it literally. <laughs> Isn't that, that's, an, this is intensely ironic. The idea that the Bible must be interpreted literally does not come from the Bible. It comes from some, uh, somewhere else and we've imposed it on the Bible. But the irony is, is those who hold that view that the Bible must be interpreted literally at all times, often hold to this Protestant understanding that the Bible alone, it's called sola scriptura, right? The Bible alone is the only place from which we get our beliefs and practices. Right? And then it comes from the, that's where we start. It's the Bible and the Bible alone. Yet the Bible never says that the Bible is supposed to be interpreted literally. In fact, it uses metaphor like, you know, Psalm chapter one, how blessed is the man who, or the person 
who does not do this, 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 this. they're like a tree firmly planted by, by streams of water. You're like, wait a minute, people are trees. You're like, just that's Psalm one. And we just keep on going and uh, throughout the entirety of the scripture. So uh, very ironic. Yeah. yeah. So to, to demand that we read the scriptures literally, and once again, like you and I are going to be the first ones to wave the flag that says we need to take them seriously and all scriptures are true. So we're not at all. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. And so, you know, we're not starting from that standpoint at all. Right. We right. have people who affirm the scriptures and, and we affirm a historical resurrection. We affirm all the historic creeds and those sorts of things. Yes. We're just saying that doesn't mean that these other literary devices don't exist. Right. Okay. And, and so we acknowledge that there's things like metaphor and, and parts of speech that exist. We, you know, simile and, you know, all, all these sorts of things that exist where you're not saying the thing itself, you're using other kinds of symbolism and imagery. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, to affirm, I have an intensely high view of scripture. I believe absolutely that the scripture is the fundamental thing that all Christians should begin with. I think we should preach the scriptures. We should teach the scriptures. I think the scriptures themselves transform lives, whether we understand it even or not, that we should meditate upon the word day and night. I believe that Christians should be memorizing scripture as a, as a regular habit, as a regular practice. The scripture is the seed of God that Jesus talks about in the parable of Mark chapter four, that's the seed that sows, and somehow it grows mysteriously. I think preachers have it wrong sometimes when we think it's my word. I have to explain the scriptures to you so you can understand them. Like, you know what? Just preach the scriptures and I'll help them explain it and understand it, but that's good enough. But I have an intensely high view of scripture um, with all that being said. But the problem with the literal interpretation is, the first problem is, it just simply fails to understand how communication works. Mm -hmm. normal communication begins with figures of speech, hyperbole, which is exaggeration to make an effect, uh, metaphor, symbolism. They're just a regular part of human communication. Now, a metaphor, just very simply, a metaphor uses the verb to be. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. That's, that's a metaphor. Jesus is not saying he's actually a beam of light or that he's actually a shepherd. It uses am or is or are. Uh, you are the light of the world, for example, referring to the church. A simile which Jesus uses in his parables, uses the, the words like, like or as. He, he's like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. Now, an extended simile is actually called an allegory. And this is ironic because an allegory is what the, those who advocate for literal interpretations, that the, they really want to avoid this. Yeah. Because a, a metaphor like I am the bread of life, well, that makes sense because bread is the primary thing that we need for food or sustenance. And to say Jesus is the bread of life means that we actually get our nourishment and our sustenance from Jesus. But to say that a person's like a tree, like what does a tree and a person have in common that makes that parallel there? Oh, who's, plant, who's firmly planted by streams of water, which actually, by the way, it's actually Eden language, which is really actually mm -hmm. really, cool, really cool and interesting. But ironically, and here's the point, our, our regular speech is just full of metaphor and there's a wonderful re research we're not going to take a lot of time because we have a lot to do tonight uh, by two uh, scholars from uc berkeley i think uh, i know uh, george lakoff is retired now they wrote a book called metaphors we live by and they talk about the idea of metaphors are just such a part of our, our regular speech and one of the things they, they that lakoff argued was that our met one of our primary metaphors in english that we use is the idea of battle and warfare We'll use this argument of war, like your claims are indefensible. Your arguments were on target. You're the weak, there's a weak point in your argument or the person, she shot down my points. 
And he's like, what if we actually used love instead of warfare as the primary metaphor by which we operated? Would it actually bring down um, the, the, the violence and the animosity amongst people? Would we be able to get along better if we began with love as the primary metaphor instead of war as a primary metaphor? But we have so many metaphors and so much of our regular of our regular speech is metaphorical. Let me just kind of give you some example here. You know, you come home from work and you say, honey, I lost my job. Mm-hmm. Well, lost your job? Like, was it missing? Did you, you know, you can't find it? You know, um, well, it, actually with that, because you asked me yeah. to, to make a list. Too, yeah, yeah. And the first two ones I did was I was fired. Yes, right? you're fired. Yep. I, I was canned. I was let go. I was sacked in Europe. There you go. I was sacked. Yeah. And so the, it's it's all metaphors. Yeah, the first ones I had on my list. Yeah, no, I, I didn't get fired, I'm, but I'm hanging on. Uh, they's hanging around. That's a tall order. The Book of James says the tongue is a fire. Right? It's mm-hmm. like no, it's not. Th- that she's on the hot seat. Hey, you know what? If you keep this up, you're going to blow my cover. And we use metaphors of like location. Like I'm on, I'm on top of it. Like mm-hmm. literally, you're on top of what? You have an eye for that. They put me in a tailspin. I'm running in circles. I'm gonna butter my I'm gonna butter my boss up before I ask for a raise. Mm-hmm. I mean, just think about that. Literally, you can put butter all over them, right? It's like now the problem though is this: you, you also cannot brown nose literally. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you are, you're, not. You, let's, you're probably let's getting not. you're probably getting pink eye next. <laughs> let's, yeah, let's hope not, because I think you're barking up the wrong tree if you do that. <laughs> Bark, there you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But we uh, might we might need to wrap this up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, anyways, you're out in a limb now. But yeah, um, right. okay, I'm, uh, if I keep going, Vinny, well, yeah, exactly. this I would go do this in night. the car with my wife and she'd go, stop it, stop Shut it. You know, <laughs> I'd, I'd look, we'd drive by a farm like, holy cow, you know, um, <laughs> and uh I, I do. I, I live in out in Brown. You know where I live. So there's yeah, like yeah. farm towns out here, and so I'll do that all the time. When there's like a you know a truck with hay, and I'll be, I'll be hey, yeah, and she's I, like I, what? I, yeah. <laughs> Whenever I drive by hay, with a, I'm like hey, you know, with, yeah, with, with yeah. the kids absolutely. But I see a I see a cow. I'm like I'm gonna stake my my claim on that, and you just, yeah. she goes stop it. I'm like what? You don't want me to utter another word? You're like, nice. Stop yep, it! Yep, stop. Yep, and she, yep. and she's like hitting me. I'm like I'm driving. You're gonna get me get a skill. But anyways, yeah, uh, actually it's, it's totally my fault. But uh, uh, nonetheless, the problem, though, is this, is metaphors don't actually translate into other languages. They don't use the same Mm -hmm. metaphors as we do. They all use metaphors, but they don't use our metaphors. And so now the reality then is that means if the biblical world used metaphors, because everyone speaks in metaphors, it's the way we talk, then to take it literally is to assume that their metaphors are our metaphors. And that's that's the first place that we start going, actually, that's not the way it works. So wait, wait. So what you're saying is you've never approached Tony, your wife and said, babe, you got a neck like an ivory tower, <laughs> which like, okay. So people don't know what you're referring to right now. <laughs> so so we're not going to go any further with that. And I'm, I'm going to stop there. I'm pausing. The, I'm putting pause yeah. right there. <laughs> Once again, putting pause, you know, and, and but, notice but by the way, it, I did not answer your question. <laughs> correct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, so, but it's one of those things where like, apparently yeah. that's the equivalent to like in the 1970s and you say like hey you're the cream in my coffee or something like yeah. that it, it's like which is still a stupid uh, line but it's like that makes a little more sense here whereas you have these other metaphors that work in another country that just are another culture and language yeah. that just don't work they don't they, and and of course metaphors are, are and idioms and figures of speech yes. like that are the hardest things for someone who's not a native speaker to, to learn and even even metaphors in english yeah. My, my uncle, my family's from Britain, from uh, England. And my uncle would say, you don't speak English, you speak American. 
Mm-hmm. Because they just they have different metaphors there. Yes. Even different words for yeah. the garbage can or, or, mm-hmm. or trash or whatever it might be, or to rent an apartment is to let. I remember first time I was in England, I'm like, why are all these buildings have the word toilet, but they are missing the I? Yeah. <laughs> it says, yeah, yeah. I literally <laughs> thought, like, it's just to let. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, it's not toilet, it's to for rent. It means for yeah. rent. Yeah. So go, going back to Hal Lindsey, because you talked yeah. about him and his yeah. okay. uh, you know book that really popularized so much of this in the late seven, late sixties, early seventies. He actually, the way he was decoding everything, he's not taking the Bible literally. No, especially Revelation. Not at all. The whole idea that we can now interpret the Bible literally because John was describing nuclear warfare, and the locusts that come up out of the abyss in Revelation nine are military helicopters that's mm-hmm. not literalism that's actually no. allegory which this is irony the one thing they're trying to avoid is allegory which is the farthest thing from literal interpretation as it is yes metaphors are it, metaphors as a bread well, of life, in an allegory you have a story where everything kind of it has a one-to-one co- correspondent with something else so yeah. this represents that and this represents this and you're you know like an animal farm story or something yeah, like that's that. what i was thinking I, I haven't read animal farm but first enoch does the same thing yeah. I, I think it might not be first Enoch, but the, the book of Enoch, where they have a whole chapter where all the characters or historical characters mm-hmm. are actually animals. Right? Yes. Yeah. And I don't read literature, like, but I think Animal Farm does the same thing. You're like, exactly. Yeah. There's nothing literal about it. And an, an allegory, Paul actually does this in the book of Galatians, where in Galatians 4, and he actually uses the word all, allegorically speaking. Yes. Yeah. That mm-hmm. Hagar and Sarah represent yes. two mountains. One's Mount Sinai and one's Mount Zion. Yeah. Uh, Mount Sinai represents the law. And Mount Zion represents grace and justice. And it's like, how do you get Hagar and Sarah to represent mountains and to represent, and the mountains representing law and grace? The literalist would say, but that's the only time it happens. And Paul did it, but that we can't do it. Only Paul can do it. But and how Lindsay too, does it? Because military helicopters are, are locusts. Well, and it's funny too, because even in that example in Galatians 4, yeah, Paul tells you there that he's he's doing that, but that's usually not how we talk when we are engaging in in figures of speech. Um, and it's even something where when we much, I'm going to use an example, and I'm I'm in no way uh, making fun of anyone, but you oftentimes see this in a movie if you have someone who has special needs or maybe autistic or something like that, and they're not understanding the social cues and they're like over literalizing something because mm-hmm. people generally we speak in metaphors, mm-hmm. we we speak in figures of speech. And so you see that maybe it's a foreigner who's has a basic understanding of in you know English, someone who has a learning disability, and they just don't understand how you're using the figures of speech. We just don't realize how common that is in our in day to day language right, and exactly. how how much we speak like that. Because it, it's just so so normalized, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Hey everyone, we want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast, and we want to remind you that everything we provide at Determined Truth is free of charge, and this even includes all of the teaching that Rob does on a weekly basis to pastors in India and around the world. We don't have any supporters that get special behind-the-scenes access, but we can only do this with the generous support that comes from those of you who can afford to give. So if you would prayerfully consider supporting us with anything from $5 a month or more, we will continue to work hard to challenge the church to be the church. To give, go to DeterminedTruth.com and click on the Give tab or follow the link in the show notes. So how do we define literal? Then, obviously, it's, you know, we're not saying literal is bad, but it's like, what is it? How, when should we use the term? We're not saying it's a boogie term, right? 
Right. Right. Yeah. There's a several problems with it. So if someone says, do you believe in literal interpretation? I would say, well, yes. But the first question becomes like, well, what does literal mean? What, what does the word literal even mean? And they never define literal. Um, it's often just assumed that, well, literal is what I understand it to mean. But that's highly problematic because what we're saying is ultimately is that what we in the modern Western world understand it to mean. But what if someone from a third world culture decides it should be what they understand it to mean? I mean, if you think about it, a third world culture today has more in common with the first century world of ancient Rome than the modern Western world. So the first question becomes the Bible literally means literal to whom? And then, as we said already, that metaphors in our culture and language are not used by other cultures and languages. So I remember when I was in graduate school, or actually my PhD work, and I came across Augustine wrote a book, St. Augustine of the fourth and fifth century, the great church father. Mm-hmm. He wrote a book called The Literal Meaning of Genesis. Hmm. Now you read it, there's nothing literal about his interpretation no, no. of Genesis. There's no, he has, you're expecting it to be like something that, you know, the answers in Genesis people might, exactly. might, say, yeah. might say. And it's like, it has nothing to do with them. But the answer is this. Augustine's understanding of what of the literal meaning of Genesis is nothing at all like what we think a literal meaning of Genesis actually might be. And that's a perfect point. So the next thing becomes then is well, you're just curious, was was Augustine using it in the sense of literal meaning, the true meaning? Was no, he, using he meant it? the literal meaning. It, so it, okay, yeah. so he's saying this is what Moses literally meant. This is what Moses literally meant. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's it's like this has nothing to do. I'm like, this is not even close to being literal. And it was to him. And I think that's the key. Yeah. Okay. The next thing I'd say would be, we, we have to suggest that literal shit should mean what someone in the first century world would have understood it to mean. Mm-hmm. It has, what literal has to mean would be, and it's simply just not the best, best word, best word, because literal just means something to us. It doesn't mean to them, but it would be something that John's readers would have understood. And so I would simply say the meaning of the text begins with what the author intended Mm -hmm. and how the readers would have understood it. And sometimes those aren't the same because Jesus tells a parable and the Pharisees don't understand it. The the disciples might not understand it. The disciples understand They had to go to Jesus for the answers. That's right. And no, by the way, Jesus's parables aren't literal. I have had one person that I have, that I've ever come across that says Jesus's parables are literally true. There yeah, literally yeah. was a man on the road to on the road to mm-hmm. Jericho. I'm like, what? Well, if they're not literally true, then they're not true. I'm like, no. Oh, I've I, had the I, same I pushback. Said, if they're Sunday not literally true, there. then Jesus is a liar. It's like, yeah, no, yeah, a yeah. liar is someone who says, "I want you to think this is actually a true story," when it's not. Yeah. If he's not telling a true story and no one thinks he's telling a true story, he's simply just making up an illustration. Then he's mm-hmm. just making up make, making up an illustration. Let me just make sure before we go any further, Vinny, that. The meaning is that which the author intended and how would it have been understood by the author or how would he have wanted it to be understood and how would have his readers and hearers have understood it? That's where the meaning is. And if you want to call that the literal meaning, that's fine. But I think the word literal just has too much baggage with it to be, to be used. Yeah. So even something like the Lord of the Rings movies or not movies, the, the books, when Tolkien's writing those, there's a literal meaning behind those. It, it it might not be that there's this actual literal good versus evil and there's not actual orcs and elves and magic potions and all this sorts of things. 
he doesn't literally mean that, but he might have a literal meaning in the imagery that he's trying to convey with whatever he was trying to write. And there's there's actually a background with Tolkien and some of his influence. But the, the point is, even if you're writing in imagery, you could produce an, a literal story without meaning this is actually what's happening. I'm not Innocent. enough with, of, of a literary guy and I yeah. can't follow Tolkien's story, so I've never read them. So okay, but okay. I've watched the movies like eight times to finally figure out, okay, now I know what's going on a little bit. Yeah. Kind of. Still don't know their names, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, when we look at Revelation though, could we even use the word literal regardless? You know, I, I guess it depends on how you define it, but is, is, is that a word that actually applies or how could we use that responsibly with Revelation? Yeah. I, again, first thing we have to do is be careful with the fact that the word literal means to some people that if it's not, if it's not literal, it's not true. And there's a fear of if it's not literal, then who decides what it actually means. And then, and the answer to that, in my opinion, is the author decides that, and we have to do our best job to discern what the author meant. But I mean, the book of revelation says Jesus is the lamb of God or Jesus is the, a lamb uh, that was slain. It describes the sun becoming black like sackcloth in Revelation 6, chapter 6, verse 12. Well, if it literally became black like sackcloth, then guess what? Chapter 6, verse 13 doesn't make any sense because mm -hmm. 6, 13 says the whole moon became like blood. If the sun's black like sackcloth, you can't see the moon. Not only that, but if the sun became black like sackcloth, then all life on earth would cease to exist. I mean, we need the sun's rays for life. So now we have to go, what's going on? What's being described by the author? And what, what is the author trying to get at? And what is he using this imagery for? Satan's not actually a seven-headed dragon. No one believes, I don't think anybody believes that. Here's another irony. Hal Lindsey says that the locusts that come up out of the abyss are military helicopters, and John didn't know what they were. Mm -hmm. But they had faces like the faces of, and by the way, it actually kind of makes sense. Let's, let's give Hal Lindsey totally. a little bit of credit here. It makes a little sense if you impose, hey, John didn't know what he was writing, so but he's writing about modern helicopters and here's how he describes them. And the sound of their wings, like the sound of many chariots of horses rushing in the battle. Like I can, okay. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. Totally makes sense. Like hair, you know, if you remember the helicopters from uh, the Vietnam war, where they colored them and painted faces and sharks teeth yep. all over them yep. and stuff like that. Totally makes sense. Problem is this. If they're literally helicopters, which a means they're not locusts, which is what John says. It's and they come from right the abyss, the then is the abyss somebody's military hangar? Oh, interesting. Right. And is Satan's thrown in the abyss for a thousand years? He's thrown in a military hangar. He's thrown in a military hangar <laughs> for a thousand years. Yeah. And I guess it's it's got to be the Russians because they're always it's always the Russians. Yeah. So it's like, wait a minute, what are we doing here? And, and no, so no one, no one takes it literally. No literalist takes the Bible literally. And it, it can't be taken literally. So. Yep. I mean, it's the same thing in chapter seven, where the the, the great multitude, uh, the, the, these ones who have been escaping persecution, they've been uh, uh, made white, white. white. they've been yeah. washed in white, their white robes by the blood of the lamb. Right. What yeah. mom who has ever cleaned any piece of linen has ever throw, thrown blood in the washer in order to get the stain out of something? But they didn't have Jesus's blood. <laughs> so if you had Jesus's blood, it literally becomes white. We hope you're enjoying the podcast, and we want to remind you that everything we do at Determined Truth, the podcast, Rob's blog, and our YouTube channel, is available on the Determined Truth app. Directions on how to download the app is available in the show notes and on the DeterminedTruth.com website. Just click on the app tab. 
All right, so this seems like a significant thing, like even a starting point before we even get into Revelation 1.1, this is what we would call a presupposition, right? Like we have to acknowledge and understand the approach we're taking to any text. There's no text more important to do this with the Revelation than this is like a pretty important thing to identify and recognize Mm -hmm. and define like the parameters of, of what we're doing. Right. Now, let me say this. So my normal mode of operation when I'm discussing the book of Revelation is that let's just get into the text and let's just read it. As we start reading it, chapter one says, I saw one like a son of man walking among seven golden lampstands. He's got seven stars in his right hand, which you can't literally have seven stars in your hand without burning your hand to pieces. And then it says at the end of chapter one, that the seven lampstands are the seven churches and the seven and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So when you start reading the text, you start undermining this literal hermeneutic because the text is doing it for you. The text is telling Mm -hmm. you, hey, Jesus is a lamb that was slain. And when you get to chapter nine and somebody says, okay, I guess we don't want to take it literally because it's just, it's obviously not literal. Whereas for you and me right now, what we're doing is we're starting with the question of literal interpretation. People are like, I don't know what to do with this. And the answer is the text is going to tell you, it's going to help us understand it. And I, and I discussed this in Follow the Lamb, that the imagery itself, sometimes John tells us what the imagery means, like the seven lampstands are the seven churches and the seven stars are the angels of seven churches. And sometimes the imagery simply comes from the Old Testament text. So a beast is ruling over the earth. Well, guess what? In Genesis 1, we were supposed to rule over the beasts. Mm-hmm. And in Daniel 4 and in Daniel 5, these kings, pagan kings, they become arrogant and they become like beasts. Ah, that's when we become arrogant, we become beast-like. And instead of ruling over the beast, the beast rule over us. And so when you start looking at the text, it'll, it'll kind of take care of itself and resolves these problems for, for itself. But I think this is serious. And I think this is serious for one reason, and that is because we have a responsibility to be faithful to the text and to assume a literal hermeneutic when the Bible never says, interpret me literally. And it, throughout the text, it's commonly not literal then we're not being faithful to the text when we just assume or impose a literal hermeneutic on the text. Secondly, the demand for a literal interpretation results in a poor interpretation and in, I think, serious errors. And we're going to have some guests on. We'll get to this at the end of tonight's episode in the next couple of weeks to discuss this a little bit, some of, some of the serious errors. But the first thing I'd say, and that's this, it misses one of the, some of the major themes in the book of Revelation, and that is that the book of Revelation was written to the people of God. And it's telling them to persevere and overcome by being the faithful, loving, sacrificial witnesses for the sake of the nations. I mean, this is the whole point. And, but instead, the, those who argue for a literal interpretation say, oh, it's about God's wrath upon the world, and he's bringing wrath and war and devastation and destruction because he wants them to, to be warned and repent, and God's church is out of the way, and our job is just to sit back and watch the signs of the times to see when this is happening. The, in other words, Revelation has nothing to say to us except to inform us in a literal interpretation, right? It has nothing to say to us except to inform us as to what's going to happen in the future, and oh, we won't even be here because we're raptured out of the way. When the reality is exactly the opposite. The whole book is telling you, hang in there, persevere. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints. It's like, what? Throughout the book, it calls for patient endurance. I, John, chapter one, verse nine. I, John, your brother and partaker in the tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance, which are in Christ Jesus. And the word perseverance is hupomone. It it means patient endurance, however your translation might go. John's like, hey, I'm a fellow partaker in this 
this patient endurance that we all need to have. Well, why would we need patient endurance if we don't have to endure anything? It's God's wrath upon the world. And we're just like innocent bystanders because God's not going to inflict wrath upon us. But I also think then, and what we'll discuss a lot as we move forward in our study of the book of Revelation is, I think the idea of God as an angry, wrathful, vengeful God sitting up on a throne wanting to inflict boils and plagues and famines and earthquakes and war and devastation and bloodshed on palm people, which is the common reading of the book of Revelation, even among some of the conservative scholars, they go a little bit further on that. Mm -hmm. It undermines the biblical story that God's a God of love and God's a God of mercy and a God of gentleness and compassion. I just, throughout the biblical story, this is who God is. So that in Genesis chapters one and two, he says, if you eat the fruit of this tree, I'm going to kill you or you're going to die. But he doesn't kill him. God gives them grace. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. Now they do, they do die later on. Literal interpretations like, well, what do we do with this? It says they're going to die. Well, they did die spiritually. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. like, well, okay, because yeah, they were, that's kind of true. They were kicked out of God's presence. And so that's true. And spiritual death is separated from God's presence. But the point of the story actually is not that, well, they did die. No, the point of the story actually is that God gave them mercy. Mm-hmm. God gave them grace. And why did they give them grace? Because they now have time to repent. If God doesn't give us grace, if he kills us all the moment we sin, because the wages of sin is death, then there's no time for repentance. Mm-hmm. Ah, so we're missing the biblical story, I think, when we start reading the Bible with this absolutely literal hermeneutic or assumption of a hermeneutic means process or mode of interpretation. So here's the question. Why would John use all this crazy imagery and give us the the drama of fighting and yeah. separating over all this stuff? Why didn't he yeah. just write it like Leviticus and just be super clear on this is what you have to do in X, Y, Z and, and that sort of thing? Right. Leviticus ain't clear either, by the way. But yeah, um, <laughs> I know. I was teaching the book of Revelation a number of years ago and I got to like chapter nine and I again, my process was just, hey, let's just re- let, read the text. Let's figure out what it says. And then we'll go, oh, that's what it means. And by the time I got to chapter nine, someone says, well, if that's what it means, why didn't he just say it? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, he did just say it. But the reality is, this is one of the ways they told stories and how they related understanding of the world. So the word apocalypse, as we discussed in our episode on apocalyptic literature, uh, means an unveiling. It's a revealing of the way things really are. And I think we looked at the first Kings passage where Elijah says, oh, Lord, show him what's going on. And and open the eyes of my servants so he can see. And oh, there's a band of God's angels and surrounding the army. The, this is the way the world really is. And so that's, it's an unveiling of things. But the thing about that uh, is this, is that when you use imagery, you capture the emotions. Mm-hmm. So if you think of Revelation chapter 12, in Revelation chapter 12, it says there's a woman, she's pregnant, uh, and she's, she gives birth to a child. That child will rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's, it's Jesus. There's no question about Jesus. That, that is Jesus. The woman then becomes the people of God. Some say it's Mary, but it's, it's probably more than that. And this is a, there's a dragon. And the dragon uh, stood before the woman so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. And she gave birth to a son. Uh, and the child was snatched up to God into his throne. And the woman fled in the wilderness, where she has a, a place prepared by God. And then there was war in heaven. And Michael and the archangels went war with the dragon. And the dragon wasn't strong enough, so he was ca- cast out of heaven. And rejoice, O heaven, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea. Because mm-hmm. the devil has come down to you and having great wrath, knowing that he has a short time. And this is, and when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman. Even though, by the way, the woman's in the wilderness where she's protected by God. But it doesn't matter. He pursues the woman. And he, it says, he poured forth water out of its mouth like a river so that he might 
she might be captured in the in the water, but the earth helped the, the woman and opened up its mouth and drank up the water with the dragon poured forth. And the dragon was enraged at the woman, and he went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. Uh, my mentor used to say that the best interpreters of the book of Revelation are children because they get it. Dragon, bad, woman, good. Mm-hmm. I mean, we stop and go, okay, the seven heads of the dragon represent mm-hmm. this. Okay, the 12 crowns of the one. It's like, no, stop. Dragon, bad, woman, good. Dragon chasing woman. Oh, I hope the woman gets away. I mean, that's just the way we read stories. So it captures the emotions. It tells you the same facts, but it tells you the facts by capturing your heart and capturing your emotions. And then think about the, think about it this way. What is more memorable, memorable and meaningful? Saying that Jesus is the most valuable thing in the world or the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. Mm-hmm. And upon finding one of the pearls of great value, he went and sold all that he had and he bought it. They both said the same thing, but one tells a story and the story has greater impact and meaning, especially when it comes to the book of Revelation, because it captures your heart and it captures your emotions. I mean, you're just saying that there's, I don't want to just say it, reduce it to pragmatism, Yeah. but this is an effective way to teach. Stories are something that people could capture. They, they're affected emotionally. It's the difference between watching a documentary on World War II or watching Band of Brothers or Saving Private Ryan. I mean, you're, you know, like I, I don't cry at a documentary, but you might be brought to tears when you're watching a movie depicting something like this. It's yeah. a, and, you're, and you're covering the same sort of historical event. Yeah. Now, obviously, John adds this apocalyptic imagery to mm-hmm. it. So it's not mm-hmm. just telling a story, but with apocalyptic imagery. So the sky is splitting apart like a scroll. There's earthquakes like no one's ever seen. Hundred pound hailstones coming down. Okay. So we have to figure out what, what's he trying to convey by this? Mm-hmm. And we'll, I think we'll try to unpack that. But Jesus does the same thing also when he tells parables. He tells stories. In fact, the gospel of Mark says he didn't speak to the people without using parables. Mm-hmm. And he's explaining everything privately to his disciples because the parables didn't make sense. And that's one of the things that we talk about when we do talk about parables. And that is when you read parables today in most churches, the Christians are familiar with them and we know what they mean. But that means that the parable actually lost its punch mm-hmm. because the parable had this shock value. What do you mean? The Tax collector went home justified? No, Jesus, surely the Pharisee was the righteous one in the story. He praised to God, and the, the tax collector wouldn't even look up to heaven. And, oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Yeah, you, you're right, you're a sinner. And the Pharisee's like, I, I fast twice a week, and I pay a tenth of all I get. It's like, yeah, that, that's the righteous one. Jesus said, surely that, ultimately, he's, he doesn't say it this way, but the interpretation is that the tax collector went home justified. I'm like, what? That's the way Jesus taught. So when we open up the page of Revelation 13, we might not expect the imagery to make sense, but when we start unpacking it, we start going, oh, there's a beast. And verse seven says it was given him to make war against the saints and to overcome them. And we stop and go, okay, I'm not sure what this means, but it's not good. Mm-hmm. And note that the war is against us. And this literal interpretation Going back to what we said earlier, it's dangerous because it makes war something happening in the world. And the reality is that war in the book of Revelation is always happening against Christ or against God's people. And even when it's against Christ, it's actually against God's people. That's how they attack Christ. So as we start wrapping it up, we saying, okay, here's the main things that we're looking at today in, in this episode. And these are 
key component. Every, everything we've talked about on every episode, we've talked about a key component on these are how ways that in which we need to read Revelation. This is as important as mm-hmm. any of them. They're all important, but it's like this is a starting point issue. And these this are the literally lenses. the most important thing we've done. Literally, yeah, not figuratively. <laughs> literally, uh, what do you mean by that? But th- yeah. the thing is, it, you're saying that, whom? yeah, we, we shouldn't assume that the Bible is to be understood literally. Is that is that what you're saying? I would stop and say it depends on what you mean by literally. And again, so that's the question we always need to ask them. What exactly, do you mean by yes, literally? What do you mean by literally? And I, I wouldn't even necessarily ask it that way as a question. I, I would just simply be cautious because again. If I'm speaking this as a pat, like if, if I'm telling you as a as a pastor, Vinny, what do you say to people in your church? I I wouldn't be as explicit as we have been in this podcast. This podcast is assuming, hey, this is what we're saying, process this. But if it's someone in my church or someone in your church or someone in your community, they probably have this understanding that literal means true. Mm-hmm. So if you say not literal, then like, okay, does that mean not true? What do I mm-hmm. do with Genesis? What do I do with Jesus? What do I do with Revelation? Uh oh, is Jesus never did he actually not die on a cross? Like, no, mm-hmm. he really did die on the cross. He really did rise again. We're not saying that at all. So if you define literally by modern standards and I'm saying, yeah, no, we don't interpret the Bible literally. That'd be silly. It just, it'd be ridiculous. If you say that literal means what the author intended, then I'd say, yeah, of course, it's, that's how we interpret the Bible. Then we do interpret the Bible literally because we interpret it literally as the author intended. But the problem is still, he didn't really mean it to be interpreted literally in most all instances. So... The problem becomes now a little bit of, we're going to debate a little bit about what the author intended. That's okay. The reality is a normal part of discourse is to use metaphors, similes, figures of speech all the time. Uh, I think, for example, that this podcast is the icing on the cake. We really, I think we've <laughs> topped this off really well. Again, so sure, the book of Revelation is not easily understood, but at the same time, I think once the message is understood, it's a powerful message. I think the story of that God has entered into our mess to bring redemption and restoration is the biblical story. And he's calling us to faithfully, lovingly, sacrificially lay down our lives for the sake of the nations. We're to love the nations as Christ loved us. We're to lay down our lives for the sake of the nations like Christ laid down his life for us. And that is how God brings redemption. And that's the message of the book of Revelation. Now, once that's been fulfilled, Christ will return, restore the whole creation. We'll dwell in his presence for eternity. There'll be no more suffering or death. I don't believe everybody gets saved. We discussed that, but so I think the word literal is just problematic. So, mm. yep. Yeah. With that, then a futuristic, usually the, the literal interpretation of revelation goes along with a futuristic view. Yes. And so we would then say a problem with this type of view is there's no real message. There's no exhortation or ethic for everyone who has come before in most importantly, the first people who it was written to. Right. And, and this is maybe a little bit of review for everyone's sake. The problems with this literal interpretation, which often assumes that it's a futuristic description that John was looking at the future and the future always happens to be like our generation, the generation mm-hmm. of the, of the modern interpreter. Everyone that, claims that. The history that. of the church has had this happen, by the way, yeah. also. And Hal Lindsey said, oh, it's our generation. And now we can do it because it's the locust Rex helicopters, which has done a little interpretation. The problem with that interpretation is the futuristic idea is that, is that, it assumes that it's about us and it means it actually no had no relevance to the people of John's day. And as we'll discuss, as we mentioned already in this podcast, that the people of John's day and the people to whom John were written are exhorted over and over again to understand, use discernment, use wisdom, that this calls for patient endurance, then keep yourself awake and so you won't be naked and be ashamed, things of that nature. 
Secondly, as we discussed in our other podcasts, apocalyptic prophecy and epistolary genres were meant to encourage the people to whom they were written. They were meant to unveil things that were that need to be revealed. And there's a reward for faithfulness. As we mentioned in our previous episode, there were seven blessings in the book of Revelation. Each of the seven letters have promises to those who overcome. And then very significantly, and we'll bring some, some other scholars on to discuss this in more detail in a while, but there's warnings in the people of God, to the people of God, the warnings to those who side with the beast and with Babylon. And if we think that the beast and Babylon are some things out there that have no effect upon us, because we're, because you know, it's futuristic and it's describing war and it's Russia, whatever, then we're not on the, on the alert. We're not looking out for the beast and for the Babylon. Mm-hmm. Yet Revelation chapter 18, verse four says, come out of her, my people. Like, whoa, what do you do with that? The people of God have been, in, some of them have been influenced by the beast and by the harlot Babylon. So, and then we stop and go, the book of Revelation, as we mentioned, is already full of commands, which assumes the reader and hearers of to whom John was writing could understand what those commands were. Hmm. Do you think there's uh, any other problems with, approaching the, you know, the book as literal. Yes. And so we've touched on them a little bit now, and this is where we're going to go. I know we want to get into the text in the chapter one, no one more so than myself, but I think it's going to be good for us to actually take a couple episodes now to interview some individuals, some scholars, practitioners, and to say, Hey, the reality is that our interpretation, this is true for anybody. We discussed this, I think last week that do not presume to be teachers, my brothers, because we who teach will be judged more strictly. Mm-hmm. That when we interpret the text, and especially teachers, because we have influence on people, that it has consequences and effects upon, and sometimes those consequences and effects are very negative on other on other people. So we're going to interview a couple of individuals in the next couple episodes to discuss, hey, so taking the book of Revelation literally, or the end times understanding of the New Testament literally leads to this, and how has that impacted you in your life? And we're going to hear their stories and say, okay, guess what? We better stop and, uh, and step back a little bit. And I know some of you know some of the work I do in Israel, Palestine, and the Middle East there, and that'll be kind of the, the genesis of, of it there also. And I discussed already the idea of making God an angry despot, which is a very common interpretation of the book of Revelation, just doesn't make any sense to me. And we'll discuss that as we proceed. But I, I think this is, I think that would be one example of the problematic nature of, of interpreting the text. You talk about the Middle East and that sort of thing. In your book, Understanding the New Testament in the End Times, you have a chapter on Armageddon. You actually don't hold to the popular view that says that this is going to be some end times war fought in the Middle East, right? Me and almost every other scholar in the world on the book of Revelation agree that this is not some Mm. popular. Yeah, yeah. I'm not alone on this one. Uh, I might be alone on a few things, but I'm not alone on this one. Armageddon Every time the word war and warfare is used in the book of Revelation, it describes the war against Christ and the people of God. It is not mm. a war waged by the nations upon Israel or anything like that at all. Warfare is what the nations do, and that, that sense is in there, You know, for example, in the seven seals. They create warfare, but war itself, the war in the book of Revelation is always waged against Christ and against the people of God. So even the arm, mm. that's why the Armageddon passage says, by the way, you better stay awake and keep your garments with you because it's against you and it's against us. And so I think that's extremely problematic. So I guess I'd say another thing, Vinny, that this view has become problematic for the last 50 or more years because Christians have been supporting violence and almost celebrating war 
watching the local newscasts or whatever it might be, Twitter feeds or whatever it might be these days, and getting excited because war uh, wars are taking place around the world when God's people are called to weep and to mourn and with those and to be peacemakers. And I was just going to say a futuristic literal reading of Revelation. You get excited for wars because this is saying it's the end of it. This is pointing to the end. This is when Jesus is going to return, which from an ethics standpoint, how do you reconcile that with the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes? Blessed are the peacemakers. You should be called the sons of God. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're celebrating war in the Middle East, and yet these wars are bringing devastation and destruction to people. And the first thing I'd say is, well, what does that even do for our witness, by the way? Because what are those people who are struggling under warfare or dying or losing loved ones or anything else supposed to think of Christianity when we're actually the ones who are condoning this war Mm -hmm. that's destroying their lives? And as you just said, we're condoning wars when, and then we shout, oh, and bust are the peacemakers. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Mm-mm. And then not only that, but we either, if we don't condone the war, we just ignore the war as like, well, that's just what happens. You know, war, mm-hmm. war happens. It's like, yeah, war happens, but we're called to be peacemakers. And Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. And Isaiah, you know, we sing that at Christmas or refer to that at Christmas time, Isaiah 9, chapter 9, verse 6. And so I think this is just a problem. I think the Christians and the church have been on the wrong side of justice. I think it harms our witness. It harms our ability to, to grow as disciples of Jesus. And I think it's literally destroying our lives. Oh, sorry. That's bad, a bad pun. I shouldn't have said that. But so, yeah. So again, in our next two episodes, we're going to talk to people. They're, and they're on different sides of the aisle on, this, on these issues. So we're going to get two different viewpoints to talk about how the way we read the Bible and the modern geopolitical issues, especially in Israel-Palestine, are affecting them and their people. One's going to be a Palestinian, one's going to be a um, Jewish. Mm, that's going to be good. I'm excited about those. And then do we finally get into the text? I think so, but I'm not going to promise. No, but you, you, again, you literally I always start the book of Revelation by opening up with chapter one. The very first episode is like, it's chapter one, let's start reading it. So yeah. and we've done like 10 episodes uh, and I think it's been good and I hope it's been helpful to people. And a, and a reminder that you have the devotional guide that many referred to earlier out there on uh, determinedtruth.com to study mm-hmm. along. You have a couple books that we've recommended in, in study notes, my book and other books as well. And we're trying to provide some notes in the study notes, the show notes for you to follow along with as well. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, hey, this has been fun. Hope, hopefully folks are engaging with this and yeah, following yeah, this yeah. and it, just really understanding that everything we've talked about in these last few episodes, these are foundational to understanding the books. You cannot just un- jump into this book and and learn this stuff as you go. Uh, there are certain skills in life where you have to do the classroom stuff before you get out there. Uh, you know, you and I both had motorcycle license. You got to learn about the the technical stuff before you get on the bike, right? It's, it's different than learning how to play tennis or something where you just get out there and say, okay, let's, this is how you smack the ball. It's, there's just certain things where you have to be prepared before you go in to do it right. And this is one of those things. So yeah, hopefully everyone's yeah. enjoying this and, and understanding and recognizing the significance of what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and one last thought, I know we've been surveying the new Testament and we skipped from first Corinthians to the book of revelation, and, but we did Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And maybe at some point in time, we're going to go back because I think, by the way, this is the same thing with Jesus. I think the, mm. I think the same thing, we, we jump in and we think this is what Jesus is saying, this is what he means. And I think Jesus is saying something, we've talked about a little bit about this, way deeper, way more profound, way more provocative. And I think we need to rec- wrestle with Jesus as well. I think the parables are not easily understood. That's why the disciples said, hey, what does this mean? 
And I think we've done it with Jesus and we're doing it with the book of Revelation also. Also, Yeah, yeah, good stuff. All right, bud, I hope you have a good week. I hope everyone listening has a great week and we'll see you guys next time. I want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast and we would love for you to share the work of Determined Truth with others. Please follow this podcast and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will go a long way towards helping others find this podcast. Then share it with others so that we can get the word of the gospel of the kingdom to more people.